Good morning, New Hope. It is so good to see you. We're in for a treat today. Let me ask you a question. Have any of you ever heard this statement? Well, all gods are the same. Anybody heard that? How about when we pray to Allah, we are praying to, it's the same God as a Christian God. Anybody ever heard that or read that? Can you see your hands, please, clearly? Okay. This is one of the reasons why we're going to do today's talk. This third reason, which is very important to you who are yet to have children, to you who have children, and to you who have had children, this is very important. Because research shows us from a multiplicity of sources, I checked 20 of them this week as a fact checker. Buckleys are known for being fact checkers. You should be around our dining room table when we debate. It's fast and furious and we check facts. Here's the deal. This is the bottom line. 60% of all teenagers who grow up in church will leave church when they go to university. And so far, the evidence is they're not back in. That's a terrible indictment. I am not happy with that. I have four children. There is something we can do about that. See, what we've done in the past is we've told people what we believe, which is important, but we've forgotten a very big part of this. Why we believe what we believe. So we started off in this series called Reasons for Believing, and we started off with a very basic concept, which is essential. Truth exists and it's knowable. That was the first plank we laid down. Because if you don't believe there's something called truth, you can't go anywhere. So truth exists or truth about reality is knowable. And secondly, we also looked at the opposite of truth is false. The opposite of true is false. And we laid that down too. And then we started last week, we looked at three facts that provided the basis for the evidence of our belief in God, why we believe what we believe. And the first thing we looked at last week, providing the evidence, was there was a beginning. And we looked at that in detail. In other words, there's a cause for the beginning. Somebody or something caused all of this. Who or what could that be? And from that argument, of the beginnings, what we call a cosmological argument, we know a couple of things. We know that before the universe began, there was no time, there was no space, and there was no matter. So whatever created this had to be timeless, spaceless, and immaterial. There was good logic for that. Since, and the other thing was that he was also unimaginably powerful. Because I, I had some guys around my place yesterday digging and moving stuff across. And I pointed out to them, I would hate to move Mount Wellington one, uh, one spadeful at a time, let alone all the mass in the universe. To move that type of mass at a ridiculous speed, you have to be incredibly powerful. So whatever caused that, this universe to begin, had to be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, and incredibly powerful. 
unimaginable that you can create an entire universe out of nothing, nada, zip. And by the way, another attribute that we saw is that this force or person or uncaused creator was incredibly personal. Because there's a choice to convert nothing into something. Into time, space, and material universe. An impersonal force has no ability to choose. No ability to choose or to make choices. So a great question to ask your friends about, the, about God's existence, and you may want to write that out the side somewhere, is to ask your friends, if there is no God, why is there something rather than nothing? It's a good question to ask. It's a good question to start if you sometimes want to know where to start. Another one, by the way, this is not directly related to this, is what do you think happens? What, what do you think happens after, the, after you die? That's another, by the way, a good question starter. You can learn about what they think. So we all have to answer the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Now, there are only two options to this. I like it. It's a binary choice. Either no one created something out of nothing or someone created something out of nothing. There's two logical choices. Now, I want to ask you, by the end of the day, which is more reasonable? Nothing created something? No. Remember, even Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music, my mother played that role, I know it intimately. She sings a song and she says, nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. So, second thing we saw, apart from the the universe at the beginning, that's a fact. Second thing we saw is this complex design Virtually everywhere we look in the universe, whether we look up or whether we look down to the nanoscale. And thus, there must be a designer. Where you have a design. See this watch? This watch is 40 years old. Now, any intelligent person can realize a whole bunch of atoms blowing together could no way near create something as Neanderthal as this basic watch. And this is Neanderthal. Even though it has solar power 40 years ago, waterproof to 100 meters, no way can that randomly happen. We know by intuition that there's a, where there's a design, behind that, there's a designer. We know that. To say anything else is absurd. Because design doesn't just happen by itself. doesn't matter whether it's a billion, trillion years. And by the way, we can calculate, some of these scientists have gone down to how many seconds the universe is old. To create a single cell, by what they call chance, there's nowhere near enough time, and chance by itself doesn't create design. There's always a mind behind the design. Behind the design, there's a mind. That is the main point I want to communicate. So from the teleological argument, we know this design, this is what the teleological argument's called, it's by design. We know some things. We can infer that whoever created this thing must be supremely intelligent since he designed life and the universe with such incredible complexity and precision. I love it. My background is computer science. And we run simulations in computer science to do things like fold a protein. Our best computers in the world take hours and hours and hours to do that. A human body can do it less than one quarter of one second. So we can't even match. 
in the best of the technology in the world, what our body does in a quarter of a second. Second, then we can reasonably infer is that the design has purpose. It's purposeful since he designed many forms of life to live in this specific ordered environment. There's a purpose in that. That's what we can infer. And then there's a universal moral law. And where there's a law, there's a lawmaker. So when we say a moral law exists, we mean that all people are impressed with a fundamental sense of right and wrong. Now, they may corrupt that, but they have it in the bottom of their heart. Everybody knows, for example, it is wrong to torture babies for fun. Nobody, no tribe, no planet would disagree with that. Everybody knows that love is superior to hate. Everybody knows that courage is better than cowardice. Professor Bud Zwighty says, everyone knows certain principles, and there is no land where murder is a virtue and where gratitude is a vice. No land exists like that in history. And C.S. Lewis, who profoundly wrote on this subject, in his classic work, Mere Christianity, said this, Think of a country where people were admired for running away in battle, or where a man felt proud that he double-crossed all the people who'd been the kindest to him. You might as well just try and imagine a country where two plus two equals five. So this moral law must have a source higher than ourselves because its prescription is on the hearts of all people and all places. And since there's a prescription, there's a prescriber. There are doctors and nurses here. They don't arise out of nothing, prescriptions. The point, they all point to a moral law prescriber. So from the moral argument, we can know that God is absolutely morally pure. And that he's the unchangeable standard of morality. This is where we get right and wrong from. Very important. If we didn't have a God, what could happen is all of us could get together as a social construct and think, this is good. And then 50 years later, we could think, no, that's bad, and this is good. And there'd be no objective basis for morality, no objective basis for right and wrong without God. And the beautiful thing about him is he never changes. And the reason why he doesn't change is he doesn't make a mistake. We do. We get things wrong. So, what we've seen, we've seen that, uh, uh, that the... Let's go back a bit. Here we go. Here we go. Fine. So we've seen that it's true that the theistic God exists from the beginning of the universe, from the design of the universe and of life and the moral law. That's what we've seen. So then the question happens to be, which is what I brought up at the beginning, okay, which God? Which God is this? Which is the right direction? Now that we've seen some evidence that God exists, we must now ask ourselves, to which evidence, uh, which God does this evidence point? Is it the God of the Bible? Is it the God of the Quran? Is it the God of deism? And remember, deism means that they believe God exists, but he kind of wound up the earth and the universe like a clock, we used to wind clocks up, <laughs> and then they slowly run out of steam. Is it that type of God that exists? Or is it God of pantheism, 
That's where all is God. And that's the question we're going to look at today. I'm going to show you eight fingerprints of unmistakable fingerprints of God that a beginner, a designer, and a moral lawmaker must possess. And we can deduce this. And we're going to look at the Bible to see if it agrees with what the evidence shows. Is there a match of the facts? So let's start off with what kind of beginner? What kind of beginner are we talking about? And what's the evidence of this? So the universe had a beginning. So at least four things must be true of the beginner. And the first one is this. A beginner cannot have a cause. Why? Well, because if a beginner had a cause or needed a cause, we'd have to ask who or what caused or created it or him. He would not be the source of life. There would be another cause behind him and there would be like an infinite regress. Therefore, he cannot have a cause. Now, the Bible says that God is the source. So we know that from a fact. So let's look at what the Bible says, how he describes, how it describes the God of the Bible. The the Bible says that God is the cause of all life. And in Acts 17 there, and up on the screen, 17.25, it says, He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. So the beginner, can I have a cause? The Bible agrees that God created all things. Look at this verse. God is the source of all life, all space, all matter. He created everything. It says there, for by him all things were created. In heaven... And on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones and powers, rulers, authorities, all things, varying expansive that word, were created by him and for him. So the Bible agrees that God created all things and that God, there in that verse, is a source of all life. He's a source of all space, all time, all matter. He created everything. And accordingly, he must be uncreated, uncaused. So, Frequent question you're going to hear. Oh, yeah? Well, who made God then? That's an old schoolboy question. And the answer is nobody made God. God does not need a cause, for he did not have a beginning. See, that's based on the fundamental misunderstanding. And here it is, is that not everything needs a cause. Only what has a beginning does. God is in a completely different category than we are. He is, we are not eternal. God is because he is the beginner and is outside of time and must be eternal because he's outside of time. So God and humans have some points of similarity. But in many ways, comparing God to a human is like comparing us to an ant. We both have life, but we're in a completely different category. We're both alive, but we're not the same. So the first attribute of a beginner, or God, is that no one made him. He is uncreated. The second attribute is the beginner must be outside of time. Because time was created with the universe. 
the beginner who created time must have therefore existed before time started, right? This means the beginner exists in a different dimension than what we do. And we call that dimension eternity. Eternity. Eternity has no past, no present, and no future. It's outside of time. Now, the Bible agrees with that fact, that the beginner is outside of time, that is eternal. Look at these verses. Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalm 93, verse 2 says, your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. That's before time began. And by the way, oh, I'll get to that later. Isaiah 26 verse 4. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord is a rock eternal. That's what scripture and how scripture supports eternality. Now here's another one. The Bible agrees that the beginner must be outside of time that is eternal. In Jeremiah 12, um, 10 verse 10, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal King. And the last one here in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 7, No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden, and that God destined for our glory, here's those key words, before time began. So the Bible describes the beginner as outside of time and eternal. That seems very similar to what we're seeing in the facts. Number three, we've seen from our previous evidence that the beginner must have an unimaginably great power. How could anyone create something like the stars and the galaxies and the moon and the Milky Way and the planets? That huge quantity of matter. I've got a piddly nine cubic bin outside my place and that'd be pretty heavy to lift and to move. We're talking about the universe, not just little old New Zealand. The, not just the world, which is a speck in his created majestic masterpiece. On the other end of the scale, who or what created atoms and energy? I just watched Chernobyl the other night. The amount of energy that comes from the nuclear reactions is phenomenal. So who or what created atoms and energy and space with power far beyond what we can even fathom? So the beginner must have power at the ultimate level. And we... Christians use the word omnipotence. That means all the power. You've got the whole lot. Which means the beginner must be all-powerful. The Bible describes, and so we've seen that through the evidence, through just looking at telescopes and microscopes. Now let's see what the Bible has to say. See if it agrees and matches the facts. Isaiah 40, verse 26, lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls each of them by name because of his great power. Mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Jeremiah 27, verse 5, with my great power 
an outstretched arm. I made the earth and its people and the animals that are on it, and I give it to anyone whom I please. He's got the power. Gee, I've got that song just in my head there. <laughs> he got the power. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power. An outstretched arm. I love this. Nothing is too difficult for you. Nothing. Well, think about that. That's entirely reasonable. The moment God created the universe, no miracle is off the table. That will be logically inconsistent to say that. Indefensible. Number four. We've seen that this great power must be highly creative. We saw that last week. Think about life's amazing diversity. Look around you. We find mountains and deserts and waters and streams and insects and birds and reptiles and amphibians and fish. I love the snapper and the salmon. They are my favorite. From delicate butterflies. Beautiful. To phenom- Life is phenomenally diverse. Here's one thing that blows me away. It goes flight in the face of all of my business background. Do you know how many species of just beetle we've got? Beetle? Through over 350,000 species of one thing, beetles. And we're still counting. Still in the taxonomy, we're still catching them. To me, I'd have had three kinds, maybe two. You know, enough for a few spare parts, but I wouldn't have that many. I'd have kept it much narrower. <laughs> Why have that many? He's very creative, and each one's different. What kind of mind could have come up with that? All those life forms. I'm just looking at one. Certainly we could say and reasonably infer a very creative mind, infinitely more creative than we are. So you creative types, be encouraged. When you're creative, being creative, you're reflecting the nature of God. Now the biblical God made all things, and a few verses testify to his creative capacity. Here's one. God made two great lights. The greater light to govern the day and the lesser to govern the night. He also made the stars. Genesis 1.21. God created the great creatures of the sea, every winged bird according to its kind. And God said, let the lamb produce living creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals. Genesis 2.9, and the Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground. I was teasing my guys that were working in the garden. I said, see that tree there? It's 30 tons. 30 tons of mass. Not not literally over there, Eric. It was kind of where I was pointing them the other day, okay? (laughs) So I said, where did that 30 tons of mass come from? Is there a hole under there where all the roots suck up 30 tons of soil? Why isn't it a big hole? That's a trick quick sidebar question. Anybody take a guess at that? I had to look it up. It's made out of carbon mostly that. Anyway, so the point is that the Lord made the trees grow up out of the ground. And so our list so far about the beginner, things that describe the beginner is he cannot have a cause. This beginner must be eternal. It must be omnipotent and incomparably creative. That's what we just looked at now. So we've found some of the fingerprints of the beginner so far that there bear a very strong correlation 
and resemblance of the God of the Bible, the biblical God. Now, what about the design? What can we learn from design about what the designer must be like? What can we learn? Well, the, we can learn that the designer must care about his creation. Everywhere we look, out into the universe or on the inside of a single cell, we see a carefully planned design. Because I'm a bit of a petrol head, I am attracted to this stuff. The simplest known cell known to man is, is what? Any, a what? An, oh, close, you're getting to the other end of it. An amoeba. Now, imagine this is just a, uh, an amoeba. Let's shape him like, like a pill, okay, like this. Now, amoeba, as he, moves, uh, as he moves to get from A to B, he's going he's to have some transportation system. Well, actually, Japanese scientists, and you can go read this. I would recommend the Discovery Institute. Out the back, he's got a propeller that goes like this. Now, what I, okay, most propellers go like this, but they don't do this. When they're doing this, those flagellums, which is a propeller, have been clocked at 100,000 RPM. How many? 100,000. Now, okay, so all you engineers are getting pretty excited. Wait till I tell you the next part. In one quarter of one turn, how many degrees is that? 90 degrees. In 90 degrees, that thing can stop from 100,000 RPM and go back the other way at 100,000 RPM. We've got nothing like that. You try and do that to a 747, that's, that's aging me, a 787 jet. There's no way you can do that. We just don't ex possess that type of technology. And here's the other thing. That motor with a stator, a, uh, a gearbox, and gears assembles itself out of nothing. And you can see it do it. Now, scientists are trying to learn as much as they can to try and emulate and harness some of that power, and it's incredibly efficient. That's called, if you want to Google it, bacterial flagellum, and go to the Discovery Institute in Seattle. You'll see the videos of it. So, by the way, you don't just throw that together. You don't just throw a 787 engine, a Rolls-Royce or a G8 engine that drive you all around the world in the sky. They're put together with incredible precision. This shows that the designer cares about and carefully plans his design. We've seen that the universe was designed to support life, so why would someone or something design something with such detail if he didn't care? Certainly seems to me that the designer does care about what he made, and this agrees with what the Bible says. Listen to what it says about God's ongoing care for his creation. This is what it says. Here's a couple of thoughts here. Nahum 1.7. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. And one of my favorite verses, which you should all remember, if you haven't already done, 1 Peter 5.7. Cast all your care on him, for he cares for you. He cares for you. This is one of the fingerprints, the hallmarks, the characteristics of the designer. Here's a couple more. John 3.16, the most famous verse in the world. For God so loved, so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. How? How does he demonstrate his love for us? 
while we were yet sinners in rebellion not even wanting to get to know him pushing him off no 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 Christ died for us we can learn something about maturity there when people with a, that we love go no 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 immaturity will go well ooh, I shouldn't say that you carry on <laughs> something came to mind then just get on with it and let him go maturity moves forward in love, takes initiative. Attribute number six. The designer must be more intelligent than anyone or anything we can imagine. Listen, we have hundreds of thousands of PhDs with our very fastest and best computers and we still can't compete with them. We never will. Science is discovering God's thoughts after him. He's already done it, we just discover it. Let's look at a few of these verses that support this intelligence. Psalm 147 verse 5. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. No limit. This is what the attribute of God that we Christians call omniscience. He is all knowing. He knows everything. These are the things that you need to communicate to your children, to your grandchildren, and to those around you who are looking for evidence of God's fingerprints. Now, I want to say something about that, that God is persuasive. He is not coercive. Somebody's going to say to you one time, well, if God's real, why doesn't he write in the sky, I am God? That would not be, that would be coercive. You would have no choice then. God hints for those who are looking, if you seek me, you'll find me. But it is not coercive. He woos, he does not force. Acts 1.24, then he prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Who are, do you know anybody who knows everyone's heart? I didn't even know my own half the time. Show us which of these two you've chosen. So we must be supremely intelligent. Let's carry on. Hebrews 4.13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Nothing. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There will be an accounting one day for what you and I did with this life and with the knowledge that we've been given. Whether we blew it off, we took it seriously, how we handle the opportunities that we have. 1 John 3.20, God is greater than our hearts. He knows everything. There is nothing that escapes his attention. He's got x-ray vision, as it were. Every thought you think about, he knows about. So the designer cares, and he's supremely intelligent. Now, that, to me, starts to strengthen the match of the God of the Bible that we've found in more of the designer's fingerprints. So a common question you're going to get you're going to get this from your children or your work colleague. Well, given enough time, couldn't chance have produced life in our universe? Just given enough billions of years, surely time could have created that. Well, the answer is time and chance does not produce complex designs or life. Chance is nothing. So it cannot help produce ordered complexity, regardless of the time involved, so in other words, adding time to chance does not explain design. Now I'm going to suppose that you and I take a helicopter 
and we go up 1,000 feet above your property. And there we get three cans of confetti, red, white, and blue. And what we do is we throw them out on top, out of that, out of that helicopter. What's the chance of them all floating down? Next slide, mate. Uh, it should just come through, actually, there. And forming a perfectly formed Kiwi flag. What's the chance of that? Extremely low. I mean, we could probably calculate that. It'd be very tough to calculate. But hang on. No, 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 no. Let's go up further. Let's go up. 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 feet, give it more time. What's the chance? Is it going to improve the chances? No way. No way. Because the natural laws will mix up and randomize the confetti. If you allow more time, taking the chopper up higher before dropping it, it actually yields less of a chance of forming a perfectly formed flag without one piece out of place. And by the way, that's way less complex than a single living cell. Time and chance does not produce complex designs. We saw that last week with more clarity. If you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to pick up the MP3 on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify, whatever you need. So, so far we've looked at six attributes of a characteristic of a beginner and a designer that they must possess. Lastly, what can we learn about the moral lawmaker? What must it be like or he be like? There must be a judge for all laws. Someone must have authority to judge and punish those who break the law and reward those who keep it. So, laws will be a farce if we could break them with no consequences, right? So the moral lawmaker must be able to enforce the laws with all people, in all places, at all times, with all fairness, with all justice. And this aligns with the God of the Bible, with the claims that God is the universal judge. The only one who can judge all people everywhere, and of all eras. Let's take a look at a few of those verses that support that thought. Psalm, verse, Psalm 7 verse 11. God is a righteous judge. He's got all the facts. He knows all the thoughts, all the motives, everything. He knows all the deeds, or the lack of deeds. As the old Anglicans used to say, the sins of commission and the sins of omission. He knows a lot. Psalm 9 verse 8, he will judge the world. That's pretty expensive. In righteousness, he will govern peoples with, this is one word that we really love, justice. Young people, you may be shocked that justice, perfect justice is not done on this earth. Some of us have been around a while, I've figured that one out, and it's very sad. But we have great hope that justice will be done by the judge who judges rightly. Acts 10, 42. Jesus is the one whom God appointed as the judge of the living and the dead. Here's a couple more. Hosea 9.9. God will remember their wickedness, things that have been done in the past, and punish them for their sins. That's what the scripture says. This is the characteristic of the judge. Psalm 62 verse 12. You, O Lord, are loving. Surely, on the other hand, you will reward each person according to what he has done. 
But let me be really clear here. There is no weighing off good deeds against bad deeds. And therefore you get into heaven. That's fallacious. That's for another day. We're going to come up later on in the series. There's no averaging out. So, Matthew 6, the Bible agrees that the only, only God as a moral lawmaker has a right to judge, punish, and reward. And in Matthew 6, 4, it says, So that your giving may be in secret, when your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Will reward you. Revelation 22, verse 12, Behold I, Jesus, am coming soon. Here it is. And my reward is with me. And I will give to everyone according to what he has done. So the moral lawmaker, not people, is the moral law source. See, once upon a time, there's a bunch of people who gathered together and thought it was okay to kill millions of communists or millions of Jews. And they thought there was nothing wrong. They thought they were doing their country a favor. That's subjective morality based on actually atheism. So the moral lawmaker, not people, decide what's right and what's wrong. And by the way, that moral lawmaker must be able to keep it, the moral law. This would mean he's a morally perfect being. In fact, the Bible says the moral lawmaker is, in fact, morally perfect. Matthew 5, 48 says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a description of who he is. Your heavenly Father is perfect. Whereas the God of Islam is exceedingly vindictive, exceedingly retributive. We'll get into that a lot deeper later on. Leviticus 19.2, be holy. We've forgotten that today. Be holy. Because I, the Lord your God, this is the important part, am holy. I'm holy. So if you want to be, we said we want to be like Jesus, we want to be like God, well, be holy. Be holy in your speech. Be holy by not gossiping. Because God doesn't, he actually, very strong word, he hates gossip. Stop lying. Stop it. Stop lying. If you want to be like God and Jesus, stop lying. And some of that lying, you are lying. Um, you find yourself lying. Why do I say that? Because you're fearful of people. How do you get rid of that? The Bible says perfect love casts out all fear. Find your security in God. Stand for righteousness. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now we've seen eight fingerprints, eight fingerprints of the ultimate being or God who is a beginner, a designer, and a moral lawmaker. That's what we've seen. Now, so here we get to the business end of it. So now the question is this. Which of the four worldviews which I have previously described in previous sessions that we mentioned even last week, do the facts support? Which of these four worldviews does the evidence point to? Is it atheism? Well, we showed... But atheism does not match the data. Let me be specific. On the beginning of the universe, atheists have believed that the universe is eternal. It's always been there. Because they've got a big problem. If the universe came from nothing, well, 
If, if, if there was a Big Bang, who was the Big Banger? It's much more convenient to have a consistent universe for them. It's always been there. That's false. Secondly, they believe that nothing caused the universe. It just happened. We proved that's false. Thirdly, the design of the universe. Number one, they say there's no mind out there. We've proved that that's false because only intelligence can create complex design. Only intelligence. And time and chance cause complex designs. We've shown that, that to be false as well. And then the moral law. We've looked at the atheist perspective on that. Their reaction is to having it violated their expense shows they don't believe it. For example, some atheists say, well, there's no moral law. But if someone steals from somebody's alpha, so that's okay. But if somebody steals from them, you see what reaction they get. They're very upset. Somebody stole my car. Somebody stole my iPhone. They get upset about that. Well, if there's no moral law, why are you upset? If anything goes, no right, no wrong, why are you upset? So atheism cannot explain the beginning of the universe, the design found throughout the universe, and the existence of the moral law. If there is no God, there is no right, and there's no wrong. It's just personal preference. You may want to write that down when somebody challenges you on that one. As we sum up, so atheism's wrong. The facts do not point to atheism. Pantheism doesn't match the facts. Pantheists believe there is no difference between God and nature. Friend, the painting is not the painter. God is the creator and we are his creation. We are not God and we've seen that the world has a beginning and so did all the life. So how can people who had a beginning become the one who never began? It's an absurd argument. doesn't make sense. On the moral law, here's what some well-known pantheists have said. Good and evil are one and the same. They don't believe in good and evil. There is no difference between the devil and the divine. Bhagwan Sri Ranjish. Pantheists also believe that they can, by enlightenment, become God. That's what they believe. But God has always known he is God. And anyone who suddenly realizes, oh, I'm God, actually isn't God. So, We've also shown here that the facts do not point to pantheism. So let's get to the deism. Deists. Deists, which is number three, agree that there's a beginner, a designer, and a moral lawmaker. They agree, and they agree that he's God. But this is where we differ. They say, once he created everything, he left the universe, abandoned it on his own, and he's no longer involved, and therefore, what's the implication? There, are no poss there is no possibility of a miracle. They've cut, that, they've cut themselves off on that one, the very branch that they're on. And what we're going to see next week is this very important point. If God exists, then miracles are possible. If God can do the miracle of creating the world out of nothing, then he has no difficulty in doing what we call smaller miracles. But the facts don't point to deism. What about theism? Theism maintains there is one God who created the entire universe. My question to you, as you reflect on some of these things, is doesn't that seem to match the facts? To fit the facts that we looked around at the beginner, the designer, and the moral lawmaker. And I just want to humbly suggest to you that theism is the best match of the facts. So looking at the question we started with, which God, which of the four contradictory worldviews have the facts supported? 
Does the evidence actually point to? It's theism. And we need to summarize and put it together that we've discovered so far. So far, our jigsaw shows us that truth exists and we can know it. And remember that any denial of truth presupposes truth. So the existence of truth is inescapable. And while we can't know all truth absolutely due to our human limitations, we can know many truths to a high degree of certainty, what we call beyond reasonable doubt. Now, if anybody tries to pin you down there, can you prove God? Your answer is this. Proof is only limited to a very few fields in this world. Math. Oh, actually, let's take it math. Because math, you can prove. Every other type of proof in this world, historical and even today in, ju in judicial, is beyond reasonable doubt. So we saw that truth exists and can be known. And while we can't know all of those truths, we can know beyond reasonable doubt. One of these truths is the existence of the nature and the characteristics of God. So from the lines of evidence that we reviewed, we know the first cause, or God, is spaceless, timeless, and immaterial, is extremely powerful. He created everything out of nothing. We know that this, this God is extremely intelligent and has a purpose, because we can see that in design. A moral, we can see this creator is morally perfect and is personal. Now we're able to know and be on reasonable doubt that this is a theistic God and these are the eight characteristics that we've viewed. Theism is the proper term to describe such a God. Now here's the amazing truth about these findings. The theistic God that we've discovered is stunningly consistent with the God of the Bible. And we may have just discovered him with actually out the use of the Bible. We've shown through good reason, last week through some science and philosophy, much can be known about the God of the Bible. We've seen that truth exists and we can know it, the evidence for God's existence, and have focused on it because of its importance. We've examined the attributes and discovered they match the God of the Bible. So next week, we're going to turn to the last challenge in this section, is do miracles really happen? Let's pray. Father, I pray for every single person that's sitting here and standing. I pray that this week, as they are out and about in the marketplace, that, Lord, you would surface conversations about you, about the beginning of the universe, about design, about does God exist, about life after death, that, Lord, you cause your people to be catalysts for conversations in the marketplace. Father, I thank you that you've called many here to be ministers and missionaries at work tomorrow. To share and to listen, but to do so with gentleness and respect. Thank you, Lord, that you are the God of truth, the God of compassion, and the God who's chosen to save us for all of eternity. We thank you for the opportunity to learn more about you today. And all of God's people said, Amen. God bless you.